Good morning. So grateful that you've joined us here this morning or you're joining us online right now. It's a gift to be together and to worship. And so Dave asked me to pick a passage from the life of Jesus and help us to think about what does it mean for us individually and what does that mean for us communally. And so I picked a passage in John chapter two that I pray draws your heart to worship and adore Jesus this morning with me. So scripture, it's full of rich imagery that helps its readers find themselves in the story. And that's the power of a good story, right? It helps us sense something as it helps us usher into a new world where we can almost taste or touch or feel what is happening in a story. And stories have a way of revealing information in a way that's much more accessible and meaningful than just telling you information. And so for an example of that, I'm gonna invite you into this glimpse of my wife, Molly, that I got recently that was uh, pretty profound. And so um, we've been selling a lot of things on Facebook Marketplace recently. Who's ever sold something online before? Anybody? It is quite a roller coaster, right? You meet all types of characters that come out of the woodwork. Some are scams, some you know, are just trying to get you as low as possible. Some people I think just wanna mess with you. I have no idea. But you get all types of stuff. You might put a $10 Roku stick online in Nashville, Tennessee, and somebody may say something like, hey, would you take $2 for it? And can you deliver it to Chattanooga? And you're like, no. And so it's like, you have those experiences over and over. And so we recently listed our vacuum and people immediately began to express interest in it, claiming, hey, we'll be there, we'll do this, all that stuff. And so we scheduled a two o'clock appointment on like a Tuesday afternoon, super convenient time to sell a vacuum and rearranged my schedule so that I would be home to meet this person. We wait an hour and of course, nobody shows up. They didn't take the time to tell us that their plans changed at all. Um, and so going on and on, you know, just anger kind of starts to rise within Molly. She's thinking the worst about these people we're selling it to. It's like they're manipulative and all this stuff. And so finally though, because um, selling things online is a lot like fishing. Sometimes you've got to wait through a lot of things, but eventually somebody will bite. And so on Friday night a week ago, somebody bit on the vacuum. And um, it was like seven o'clock or so. We're playing cards with a friend at our house. And the guy said, hey, we'll be there in 20 minutes. And we're like, all right, great. So naturally, 45 minutes later, nobody's shown up and Molly's starting just like, she's ready to lay into this guy. And she's like, if he ever gets here, she's gonna hear about it. Um, but finally, the guy pulls up. I walk outside with the vacuum. I talk to him for a couple of minutes. I sell the vacuum, come back in, sit down to play cards. And Molly's whole tenor has changed. She's now, upon seeing the guy, she's realizing, oh man, I wonder if he's gonna like enjoy that vacuum. Do you think it's gonna fit his needs? Like, did we overcharge him? And like, she's all of a sudden concerned about this guy that 10 minutes beforehand, she was, he was a source of frustration. Because what you see happen is that Molly saw this guy and immediately the, the real Molly bubbled up. If you know Molly, you know that she is wonderful, kind, sweet, and generous. And that was a true revelation of herself. So it's one thing just to tell you that Molly is super kind and she's got some fiercity to her, but it's another thing to tell you a story that invites you into that moment. And the reason I bring that up is, is because scripture is full of stories that help us get a great glimpse of God in ways that just passing on information can't always do. And that's what I love about the book of John. It's kind of a unique gospel compared to the other three where the other three spend a lot more time with Jesus among crowds, doing super marvelous, amazing things, where John has some of that, but he focuses a lot on personal interactions between people. 
men, women, rich and poor, religious, non-religious. John is showing up to people, or Jesus is showing up to people and revealing who he is. And I want you to hear the book of John as if it's from an old friend telling about their old friend. So I love, that's what John's doing. At the beginning of his gospel, he announces that Jesus is the hope of the world. And by the end of his gospel, he's saying, I compiled these stories about my friend and my Lord so that you can believe in him and have life in him. So he's telling us these stories about Jesus. And one of my favorite pictures in the whole book comes from John chapter two. And here we get a picture of Jesus in his full humanity and in his full divinity. What Jesus throws through his, shows through his presence, through his words, through his actions, compel me to believe that he has the keys to life. And this morning, I want us to worship and adore Jesus as presented in John chapter two. So if you will, if you'll read along with me in your Bible, we're gonna have it on the screen. We're gonna start in verse one, and we're gonna read verse one and two of John chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we're given the setting. Jesus, his mother, and the disciples are at a wedding in Cana. And when I hear that, I'm reminded that one of my favorite places to be on planet Earth is at a wedding reception. They're just fun. You get to celebrate with people, have a good time with people that you love. Um, The only exception is if that wedding happens to be on a Saturday in the fall during an epic college football game, right? No, I'm just kidding. Man, that did not land here. All right. Um, But saying a wedding reception probably conjures up memories and emotions for you. I know it does for me because I loved my wedding. It was an amazing day where from the four corners of Molly and I's world, people gathered from Houston, Texas, Mount Juliet, Tennessee, all over the United States. And my own sister was living in Rwanda at the time and she flew over. All these people spent money, spent time to come and to celebrate what God was doing among us. And when I think about our wedding, I think about eating pasta that was really good. I think about the toasts that people gave and honored us. I think about dancing for hours. I think about requesting to our DJ, hey, whatever you do during the bouquet toss, don't play Single Ladies by Beyonce. We were just kind of tired of it at that point. And what song did our DJ play? Single Ladies by Beyonce. Um, I remember my friend Quentin doing a backflip on a concrete floor and his head was just inches away from the concrete. I remember thinking, if he doesn't land this, this ends the reception, like this would be terrible. I remember leaving our reception in a 1956 Thunderbird, that's my father-in-law's, through a tunnel of people and just focusing on don't kill this thing right now. I have a lot of memories that make me picture like heaven on earth when I think about my wedding reception. It's a time of joy, generosity, celebration, and love. And so I bring this up because here we are at a wedding reception. And while my wedding reception lasted a couple hours, Wedding receptions in the ancient Near East could last up to a week. Interestingly enough, in their culture, the groom bore the financial responsibility. And so now that I have a daughter about one years old, I'm hoping that we go back to the system in the next 20 years or so. But week-long wedding receptions were something you would have to save up a lot of money for, something you'd have to spend a lot of time preparing, something that you would have to plan to host all these people in a significant way. And I love that we find Jesus at a wedding surrounded by people he loves, celebrating. God in the flesh finds himself celebrating at a wedding. I think that is wonderful. But there's conflict as we keep reading in verse three through five. 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. A true tragedy has occurred at this wedding. And every host's nightmare is to run out of something that you need for a good party. The guests had arrived, the people were celebrating. It was a time of fun and that was about to come to a screeching halt. There was an expectation that there would be enough food and enough drink and now they've run out of wine. This was a serious social embarrassment that probably would have been the thing that people remembered about this wedding. And you know, we've all got stories that for whatever reason stick in our mind, no matter how much we've tried to forget them. And it's really unfortunate, particularly when those are embarrassing stories. And I think of one unfortunate third grade classmate of mine that um, I hope she has overcome this. I hope she's overpowered this moment. She's found healing and grace. But if she were to walk in right now and she doesn't live here, and I'm not gonna tell you who she is, but if she were to walk in right now, that would probably be the first thing I thought of is this moment I'm about to tell you. And so we're in third grade, Miss Tyler's class. Um, we're, I'm sitting in one of those classic public school desks that is like the chair desk combo, I'm sitting in a plastic sheet or seat that you have to move in from the left to sit in. And it's a desk that is built for right-handers and kind of everybody who's left-handed just kind of has to suck it up and deal with it. That's just the way it is. And so I'm sitting there in this desk and I'm in, near the back of the class and there's an open space to my left that this girl walks up to and she announces, oh no, I've done it again. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what has she done? And I notice, and pee is flooding down her leg and filling the light blue carpet, making a dark blue circle that is increasingly expanding. And I move my my desk out of the way to get out of the splash zone here. And I am so like mortified for her. You know, I peed myself, I I get that. But the way that she, (laughs) but the way that she announced it made it so memorable, right? It's something I can't, like 23 years later, now I'm thinking, man, I can like feel that embarrassment for her. You know, and I I bring this up because running out of wine at a wedding would have been all that people remembered about this wedding. It would be front of mind when you thought about that couple or that day in this culture. And so Jesus' mother involves Jesus. And I find Jesus' response interesting on two levels. The first is that he refers to as woman, and to our 21st century ears, we hear that. It's like, that seems kind of weird. Is he, like, is he demeaning her? What's going on there? And I can assure you that he was not. Um, Jesus is not being misogynistic in any way. In fact, Jesus uses this same greeting towards his mother in the end of the book of John when he is on the cross and his mother is watching him in agony and he is still showing compassion towards his mother when he calls his disciple and says, hey, she belongs to your family now. It's, a, it's not disrespectful in any way. If anything, it's, it's honoring. And the second thing that stands out to me is that Jesus rightfully asked the question, what does this have to do with me? He's very clearly acknowledging that he's not responsible for this conundrum happening at this family's wedding. And that's what he's talking about because he knows his ultimate purpose is the hour that he refers to. And all throughout John's gospel, you're gonna find Jesus referencing his hour or referencing his time. And he's referring to what he will ultimately do on the cross in his resurrection. Because he came to deliver humanity from our sin and our darkness and death. And that is what he's beginning to do on the cross. And this is his ultimate purpose. However, I find it fascinating that eventually Jesus either changes his mind or he yields to his mom's request. 
while his glory is revealed in his death, death and resurrection, I don't wanna just only jump to the cross and miss moments like this in Jesus's ministry because I think this reveals something so unique and so beautiful about our Lord. And so Jesus's mother tells the servants to listen to him. And let's find out what happens in verse six through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You see, Jesus points to these six massive stone water jars that were there for the guests to be ritually clean by their Jewish customs. And as indicated in my translation here, this is something, if you were to total all the, the jars, somewhere around 150 gallons of volume here. And they fill, Jesus instructs them to fill them and they fill them all the way full. And he has them draw water out and bring it to the head waiter of the banquet and head waiter of the banquet tastes it and miraculously, somehow Jesus has turned this massive amount of water into really good wine. A moment that was full of embarrass potential embarrassment, Jesus brings into this abundant provision, abundant joy, and the, the master of the banquet finds the bridegroom and starts praising him publicly in a moment that could have been a tragedy. I love this. Jesus closes this out with verse 11 here. He says, this then is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You know, John over and over throughout his gospel uses the word signs. And particularly here, it's, it's important to know that this sign is miraculous. It is something abundantly provide, like where God provides in a unique way. But I love that signs is used here because it can't be used just for like a naked display of power. It's not just some trick that Jesus is doing to impress people. Like he is revealing something because signs reveal things. And this sign right here reveals Jesus's glory. It manifests his power, his magnificence, his uniqueness. It reveals that he is God and he's also fully human. He is the Messiah who came to free people from their sin and deliver them out of darkness. And it doesn't seem that everyone in the party got to watch this sign unfold because I, I think everybody got to enjoy the bottomless wine at the wedding, but only the servants, the disciples, and Jesus's mother were aware of what happened. And we're told that the disciples, when they see this moment, they see the glory of Jesus and they believe in him. And you know, and John makes it very clear in John chapter one, the, the chapter right before this, where he's describing Jesus, he describes him as the creator of the world who comes into the world and not everybody who even saw Jesus saw him for who he really was. And so there's people at this wedding who were not aware that God was in their midst. But the people who took a closer look, the people who saw glorified God and became children of God, according to John chapter one. This scene in Jesus's life here found in John chapter two I believe is worth us dwelling on, church. And so for the next few moments, I want us to practice a simple tool for reading scripture. And the tool goes like this. First, we ask the question, what does this reveal about Jesus? 
This is a great question to ask when you're reading the Bible. What does this reveal about Jesus? Next, we're gonna ask, what does this mean for me individually? So what does this mean for me? And then the third question we're gonna ask is, what does this mean for us together as we read together? And so what does this passage reveal about Jesus? There's four aspects that I want us to sit in and dwell on as we adore Jesus together this morning. And the first is that Jesus was invited to celebrations. God in the flesh was personable enough to be invited to a celebration and he participated in the celebrating. You know, it's tempting for some people to view God as as, um, distant or a cosmic killjoy who's unrelatable to us and doesn't care about the small details of our lives. But this story is one of many that I believe points to a very different reality about our God. Because God delights in humanity enjoying each other, sharing meals, sharing wine, and being fully human. God made us humans and he gave us wonderful gifts in creation. He gave us emotions. He gave us the ability to celebrate. And sure, we can misuse all of these gifts. We often do. But when a gift is rightly ordered or it's rightly used, God delights in that and he participates with us. God is not just waiting for this world to pass along. There are glimpses of heaven all around us that God wants us to revel in, to share with others, and to thank him for. You know, there's a quote that has helped me dwell on this moment in Jesus's life from a book called The Brothers Karamazov. And the author, Dostoevsky, um, reflecting on this moment at the wedding of Cana has this to say. I love this quote. Not Not grief, but men's joy Christ visited when he worked his first miracle. He helped men's joy. He who loves men loves their joy. He who loves men loves their joy. Church, this is an aspect of Jesus that I think it is deeply important to dwell on. And so the second aspect that I want us to dwell on is that Jesus knew his ultimate purpose, but that was not the only thing he was concerned about. Yes, God came to deliver us from our sin and reunite us with God through his sacrifice on the cross and through his resurrection. That is the pinnacle of Jesus' work. And it's tempting for us to focus all of our attention on that and miss out on the rest of the life of Jesus. But this story begs us to not do that. And another quote from that same book, I believe brings this character out for me when he's focusing on the conversation between Mary and between Jesus. So listen to this. His mother knew that he came down then, not just for his great and awful deed, but that his heart was also open to simple, artless merrymaking of some unpolished, unrefined, naive beings who lovingly invited him to their poor marriage feast. My hour is not yet come, he must have said with a quiet smile. Indeed, was it to increase the wine at poor weddings that he came down to earth? Of course the answer is no. He did so much more with his life than just turn water into wine, but don't let that that truth make you miss the fact of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus saw other needs that were not his own and he gracefully met them. Jesus is profoundly empathetic while also being incredibly driven towards his mission. Jesus had boundaries, but he still found time time and space to make for people along the way. So the third aspect that I want us to dwell on is that Jesus listens to his mother. And all the mothers in the room said, amen. When you take a step back and think about this truth though, this is deeply profound. 
Jesus is the creator of the universe, and he listens to one of his created beings who no, has, no longer has any authority over him. Jesus was an adult male in a deeply patriarchal society, but he listens to his mom. He loves his mom. He submits to her request. He who has all of the answers to life thinks it is worthwhile to listen to somebody else who has a different perspective than him. Because Jesus is humble, he's graceful, he's present and honoring. This is our God in the flesh. And so the fourth aspect that I want us to sit in this morning is how Jesus meets us in our shame and how Jesus meets us in our emptiness. This had the potential to be an incredibly damaging moment for this poor family. They had no more wine. They were at their wits end. There was no possibility for them to do anything about this problem that they found. They didn't have a pile of cash that they could go and buy a bunch more wine to satisfy their guests. They had nothing that they could do to resolve their present situation. But Jesus shows up. He shows up with an absurd amount of wine, around 150 gallons to meet their complete lack. And church, this is the gospel. Don't miss it. At At our worst moments, when we recognize there's nothing we can do about our present situation, when we find ourselves in those habits of sin or this, this rhythms of frustration we're finding ourselves in, that we can do nothing about it, Jesus pulls up with abundant provision to make all things right. I'm convinced that this is why there's so much wine at this wedding. Jesus is not encouraging drunkenness. Like scripture is clear that drunkenness is damaging and it is sin. But what he is doing is he's showing that he alone is enough and he has more than enough provisions to meet any kind of need. There's no shame that Jesus cannot overcome. There's no brokenness, there's no sin that he cannot heal and it is all his work. So receive it. And after dwelling on these reflections here from John chapter two, our next turn is to to ask, what does this reveal or what does this mean for me individually? And my own reflection this week as I've been studying this is that Christ is inviting me to focus on restoring the dignity of those around me. Church, restoring dignity into another person is gospel work. We are surrounded by people who are struggling to find their identity, who are struggling to find their value. And God is explicitly clear in scripture that all of humanity bears God's image and has inherent value. When we practice the simple act of restoration of dignity, we can do this by sitting with others, listening to others, meeting small needs, honoring people who typically don't receive much honor. This is participating with God. It's one of my favorite moments about being a youth pastor is I get invited into some really sweet and significant moments in middle school and high school students' lives. Sometimes a student might just be terrified and burdened with some sin or some shame or something that they've been holding on to, and they've worked up the courage to come and talk to me about that, that is an invitation for me to be empathetic, to partner with God, to listen to them, to often say, me too. Like I've dealt with that or I'm dealing with that. And to be able to remind them that the gospel is good news for them, that there's hope for them, that God is actively redeeming and healing even through that conversation. I am partnering with God and restoring somebody else's dignity. And we are surrounded by people who need that truth. We're surrounded by people who are hurting and broken, who need to be reminded of who God is and what that means for them. 
because dignity restoration is God's work. There are countless other individual takeaways from this passage, and I'm gonna invite you here in a few moments to reflect on that together. But before we go any further, I wanna invite you and just remind you that following Jesus is not just an individual journey. When we read scripture together, we must begin asking, what does this mean for us together? What does this mean for us in this room together? And this week, I found an invitation in this passage to be a community that listens to each other. Jesus, the most ultimate leader on the most important mission of all time, found time to make space to listen to others. He thought it was worthwhile. Church, in a world that is hyper-focused on everybody sharing their individual version of the truth and blocking out all competing visions of truth, the church has to be different. We're invited to be a listening people. Listening is a living theology that the people around us bear God's image. Of course, we must discern what we're taking in and what we do about that information, but we've got to start by listening to create space for other people. And I invite you, and that's just one of, yeah, that's just one communal takeaway. I think there are countless others in this passage. And I invite you to to pay attention. What is the Spirit stirring in your heart for this community? And I pray that all of this shows you that John 2, the wedding at Cana, is one small glimpse into a beautiful life of Jesus, God in the flesh. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I encourage you to take a careful look of Jesus as revealed at the wedding of Cana and begin to ask questions about him. And if you would like to learn more, or if you have questions, or you'd like to have a conversation with somebody, I invite you in just a few moments to join me over here at the Respond Banner, where me or some other people from our pastoral team would love to talk with you, would love to begin a conversation, to love to hear you out, and that is a space and opportunity for you to dwell on who is this Jesus. And I pray that, um, yeah, join me at the Respond Banner. We're gonna take communion here in just a moment. And each week we gather around the table and we take the bread and we take the cup and we remind each other that Jesus is real, that Jesus is enough, that Jesus is glorious, that Jesus is king, that Jesus is beautiful. And there are real life implications of that. And so as we take the bread in this cup this morning, I invite you with two or three people around you to share one aspect of Jesus that you wanna dwell on. It can be one of the ones I mentioned. It can be something completely different, but something from John chapter two this morning that ministers to your heart. And as you take the bread and as you take the cup, I want you to celebrate that aspect of Jesus and ask that to shape your life together as you take communion. If you need prayer for anything else, maybe you need healing or you're in a stressful situation or whatever is happening, I also invite you to join us at the Respond Banner. We would love to listen we would love to pray about whatever it is that's going on in your life. So I'm gonna pray, and then I'm gonna invite you to take some communion with us. Father, thank you for this space this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather to declare who you are in song, to listen to the voices around us, God, as we join heaven in proclaiming that you are glorious, that you are Lord, that you are distinctly different from all things and yet you choose to reveal yourself to us. God, thank you for being real. Thank you for being loving. God, I pray that the truth of John chapter two and how you reveal yourself, that that just meets us this morning. God, that my feeble and inadequate words somehow through your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit 
settle on our hearts and encourage us to, to join you at the table. So God, as we take the bread, as we take the cup, help us remember that this is real. This is not some fantasy, but God, you gave your life so that we can have life with you and you are worthy of worship. And that is good news for this community. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.